Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. Welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation. Today, I have my good friends, Coyote Peterson, Trent Underwood, and Mario Aldecoa joining me for today's podcast. We're going to be going over quite a bit, but we wanted to kind of take a deep dive specifically into what does it take to actually produce a conservation film from concept to finish? I think we all are used to just seeing this stuff show up in our browsers and our feed, but we don't realize how much work goes on behind the scenes and how much calculation is involved for what is actually going to make an impact and what's going to stick with the crowd and how do you get that captured. Uh, so with that, guys, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Mario, uh, Trent, this is your first time. Coyote, second time. Glad you guys came on the show today. Yeah, excited yeah. to be here. Epic. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mike. Um, you know, I think this is, I don't know how many podcasts I've done, but this might be, well, it's definitely top five right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Just so you guys know, this is kind of like a combination of crowds listening in. It's not just GCF. Uh you know, crowd itself, but it's got a pretty good reach these days. And it's kind of fun because uh, we get good questions from folks listening who are like a lot more interested in the real aspects of what everybody's doing versus kind of like, you know, the superfluous top, just kind of what they expect it to be. So let me start here. Uh, Coyote, let's go Instagram bio style introduction and how you would maybe introduce yourself to someone who doesn't know you in a business pitch. And then we'll go through each one of you guys so that everybody knows who you are. Great. I'm Coyote Peterson. I'm a host on the Brave Wilderness YouTube channel. For the past decade or so, I've been traveling the world to get up close and personal with some of our planet's most fascinating, misunderstood, and oftentimes feared creatures, trying to do our best to tell their story so that the world better understands why these creatures are here, why they're important, and ultimately how to conserve the environments that they exist within. Yeah, I am Trent Underwood. I am our uh, DP or director of photography. Um, so I kind of lead the charge in the field for all the video. Um, I do drone work. I do time lapses. I run a cam. Um, we do specialty shots. So me and Mario work in tandem. Um, but my main role is, is kind of figuring out the shots and figuring kind of how we're going to visually tell it alongside Coyote, uh, who's directing it. Cool. Uh, so I'm Mario Decoa, a wildlife biologist, uh, cinematographer, producer, photographer, uh, for Brave Wilderness. Um, Always had a passion for animals since I was younger and knew that one day my career path will lead me to a point of uh, experiencing animals in the wild. Uh, and that's what I really enjoy doing through Brave Wilderness and telling conservation stories and creating meaningful pieces of content. So Mario, how did how did you actually link up with Coyote and Trent? Where, where was that foundational piece? That was um, <clears throat> unexpected as a lot of 
paths in my career. Um, but uh, I've always been open to opportunities. And I met Coyote and the original Bray Wilderness team in South Florida, which is where I'm from. Um, they went down to South Florida to film Crocodilians, which is my expertise. I worked with the American Crocodiles in South Florida for several years on a really unique program there. And um, through a mutual friend or my boss at the time, um, he's like, hey, we've got these young guys coming out to do uh, some filming. They need to film crocodiles and alligators. And would you like to be their guide? I agreed, as I often would uh, participate in lots of filmings back then with Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, whatever. I'd be that behind the scenes person. Um Met Coyote, I was like, hey, look at this guy. He looks like a, like a little Indiana Jones with his <laughs> cowboy hat and all his gear. And, uh, you know, we're roughly the same age. So I was like, oh, kindred spirit. Took him out to uh, do what they had to do for filming, and it was successful. And most film crews are like, hey, yeah, we'll keep in touch. But they never do. But Coyote uh-huh. did. And so um, he left and uh, a few years later contacted me again and was like, hey, can we work together again? I said, yes. And literally from then on out, um, the rest is history. He uh, invited me on some trips as their local wildlife biologist. I said, sure, I would love to travel. And later on, just my role increased and naturally fit into the very wilderness ecosystem. Epic. And and Trent, where, where did you join the team? Because... Uh... You're newer, technically, quote, to the team in some aspects, right? Yeah, I came a few years after Mario. So Mario was there, obviously, in the beginning, before any of our editors or the office or before this whole uh, machine was created. Mine is a little bit different in that um, I was on Indeed looking for different uh, jobs all over the country because I was shortly or been maybe a year and a half out of school. Um, and I had several options that I had pursued and I was like, you know, I I don't really like those that much. So I'm going to keep looking. So I was looking on indeed and, uh, Chris cost was, uh, the lead editor here at brave wilderness at the time, um, had messaged me and was like, Hey, I really like your, your reel and the stuff that you're doing. Um, you know, I want to bring you in. And it so happened that the guys were in South Africa, actually the first time in South Africa. So, um, I had to wait until they got back to go in. And I think it, I mean, they were down there for a few weeks and then there were some things that, uh, they were producing shortly after. So that kind of got delayed and, you know, I kept following up with Chris and, um, you know, was like, Hey, he's like, yeah, they'll, they'll be back soon. And then there was another job posting for a different position, but still at Brave Wilderness. And I was like, I messaged Chris. I'm like, Hey, whatever happened to, you know, the previous one? He's like, Oh, let me, let me send it over. So I ended up talking to, uh, Bo, our CFO. And, um, I also talked to Mark as well and then came in, met with everybody, had an interview and then that was it came on the team. So not as uh, a long of a journey as, as Mario or, or involved. Um, so I guess you could say Indeed works, you know? So for anybody <laughs> that is trying to find something on Indeed, I mean, it, it definitely it definitely does. But um, yeah, I mean, I've been with Brave Wilderness since um, summer of 2018. So we've seen quite a lot. I mean, right after I started, we did Animal Planet. I mean, it was maybe four months after I started, like, hey, guys, we're doing a, a TV show. So first, you know, <laughs> my first impression was like, oh, we're going to do YouTube stuff. 
<clears throat> and then very quickly it became, oh, now we're doing Animal Planet stuff and YouTube stuff. So jump right in. And ever since then, we've been creating incredible content and uh, seen a lot of different things and been to a lot of different places. Yeah, you guys have a really good... Uh... If you threw a montage reel of all your your sites together, it would be pretty pretty sick with all the locations. <laughs> Good idea. We should do that. Yeah. So, and then Coyote, where where did you really start? I know this is a lifelong dream and passion culmination for you, but what was like kind of the, now's the time to launch this and I've done this, so I feel ready to tackle this or I really want to go after this now moment. Like, how did that kind of come into play? Yeah, great question. So <clears throat> most people probably don't realize that my education is actually in screenwriting, producing and directing. Um, you know, Mario's sort of our animal, our, our certified degreed animal expert. I know a lot about animals having studied them my entire life, but my, my education is in screenwriting, producing and directing. Uh, when I first got out of college, I was pursuing the big dreams of creating independent films Got very close to getting a film financed uh, just after college. That ultimately ended up falling through. And right about the same time, um, Steve Irwin had sadly passed away. And at the oh, wow. same almost cataclysm, Bear Grylls was on the up and up with the show Man vs. Wild on Discovery Channel. And at the time, my business partner Mark and I looked at, at those two elements of entertainment and education and conservation and everything that roped together between the two. We said, okay, well, there's sort of this gap here in the marketplace for outdoor animal adventure content. And while Bear was doing a great job cinematically and story-wise and how it was all cut together, he was also eating animals. And we're like, well, we got to take that and then rope in the Steve Irwin side to it, promoting conservation, really educating people about species. And we just started developing our own vision for it. And you know, we find <clears throat> a TV show very early on pitched it to many networks. Everybody told us no. Uh, eventually, the opportunity came around to work through a digital arm of Discovery Communications. Um, they did not finance the first uh, slug of stuff that we did, but we went out and raised the angel investment to produce the first 52 episodes of a show called Breaking Trail that ultimately became the Brave Wilderness Channel. So it, it all officially <laughs> launched publicly in 2014, and for the past eight years, we started and we just really haven't looked back. And it's certainly opened up an amazing world of opportunities for us to work with some great conservation groups, travel the world, film just about any animal species you can think of, despite the fact there's still many left to get in front of the camera. Um, we're very fortunate to have had the experiences and the animal encounters that we have thus far. That is pretty cool. I mean, eight years. That is, it's crazy. I mean, I can relate to that with, uh, you know, the formal launch of GCF being in 2014 as well, like the actual kickoff. Uh, and it's, it doesn't seem like it's that long ago, but also it feels like forever ago. Whereas like, I would assume when you were saying you're doing some of your, your pitch episodes and stuff like that, or your slugs that was leading up to that timeline. And then boom, like, you're like, okay, now let's formalize this and we're going. Um, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a very strange, uh, four and a half to five years worth of brave wilderness slash coyote Peterson work and development that was all done. That is really kind of a gray area that is not known very well publicly just because it, it is not really out there for the public to absorb, but there was, uh, you know, about 10,000 hours that went into the vision 
before we even launched our first YouTube channel. So a, a lot of work. People don't ever see it until it becomes something successful. And when you look back on it, you're like, man, we've been at the hustle for a long time. Yeah, I totally understand that one. Um, so with everything going now, how many how many episodes have you guys kind of closed out? Where are you guys at in this quote, like archive series of your, your work in that aspect? I think this weekend's episode with the mantis shrimp might be like 742 or something like that. It's, it's right in that wow. round between 735 and 750. Um, is a lot. Which is, oh which is crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, half the time I'm chuckling, I'm like, I'll, I'll be doing something completely separate and I've, I've shot you guys. Hey, have you guys done this before? Like just out of curiosity, if you guys have filmed it and you guys send me an episode and I chuckle, I'm like, I didn't even know that existed. And then, (laughs) and it's like literally the same thing, but it's, 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 that's a lot of episodes. 700 plus episodes is a lot. Yeah. I think our big goal is to try to hit a thousand in 10 years. We feel that would be a really good bar to hit. And you have to keep in mind like this, the majority of these episodes are pretty high caliber, well-produced content. And while we have done a handful of things that are, you know, more smaller behind the scenes things that maybe didn't take as much work in pre and production and post-production, the the vast majority of, of everything we do is very high caliber and, you know, like you want to talk about today, Mike, how does it go from concept to completion and distribution? And that is quite the cycle. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you segued with that right there, because uh, I, I, I think we all live in our own silos, right? So we all know our own life work and or what we're familiar with. And then sometimes you go to certain aspects and something that seems so simple really isn't. So, uh, you know, something as quote, basic as a YouTube broadcast that you guys have a full team, you have editors, you guys all wear multiple hats. Um, you guys are filming, writing, scripting. Well, I would just say scripting, but more like story blocking and setting yourself up. But then you have to thread the needle because anytime you're dealing with animals, it's never just, okay, let's just do this. You have that unknown element that the animal adds or the insect or whatever you're working with, it's not always going to be the perfect shot. So you've got to do things over. Um, let's start with, let, let's start with like the concept phase. So we can use save the horns as an example. I know you guys had talked about prior to uh, us actually going out, wanting to film, you know, some big iconic species in Africa and you know, you guys on your side are waiting between your edits, your planning, your budgets, and what you're already releasing and you guys are kind of in a multi-month cycle and you're like, okay, this might be a good timeline. So then it becomes a little more serious and we start looking at what exactly you want to film and the episode concept ideas and how you guys think you guys can film that. And then from there, we're kind of going through a thing. So in the office side, like what's kind of that first meeting that you guys are taking where you're like, let's move into this direction and how many people are you starting to kind of move with? Because there's a lot of stuff shuffling behind the scenes that, you know, there's, there's a lot of work, basically, a lot of work involved. Mm-hmm. A lot of it starts with Mario, actually. So Mario, why don't you talk about your process when it comes to identifying a species and starting the pre-production elements of getting us in touch with the right research teams, conservation groups, or location specialists to put us in position to even 
get ready with cameras? Yeah, um, that's a great question, Mike, and, and Coyote for the lead up. Um, there's various ways that we come up with a concept, but considering we are a nature uh, series primarily, right? Our segments revolve around a species. And not only does it revolve around a species, but it revolves around potentially a location or a group of experts that work with those species. So initially it's, it's um, a discussion as to seasonality, right? What time of year do we need to go film somewhere at? And what species might be available in that location? Oftentimes, we either already have an idea of an animal that interests us, and we simply start to look into that. So once we start looking into that species, species A or B or whatever, I'll start doing the research, which is the fun part. I, I really enjoy going online. Sometimes um, we have zero leads, meaning I don't have any contacts or anyone that might know of this animal. It's just going online and typing away, doing some <laughs> detective work. Um, and you start to answer, I start to answer the questions again, seasonality. Where are these animals located? How difficult is it to film these species? Do you need permits? Um, what, uh, what's the logistics of travel to even get there? What's, what's the cost of travel to, to get to the location? All these factors are on the table as we start to piece together what a potential episode might look like. The um, Usually, you get breaks when you find an expert in the field. For example, in South Africa, Mike, you were invaluable, right? You were that piece Thanks, that was like, okay, we would love to do rhinos. And we've got a contact for rhinos through Mike and his organization. And then it's me bugging you with all the questions and logistics. <laughs> and you are a natural producer, by the way, because you anticipated many of my questions and you would give me the exact details as to what we needed. And uh, it goes from there into then the creative element, right? And this is the fun part. This is the part that the entire team here at Brave Wilderness, many of us get together and start to think of the creative. Well, we want to do a Rhino episode. Okay. How is it going to be engaging for the audience, right? How can we keep it fast paced? How can we hit certain metrics on YouTube that we need to hit in order for a video to become successful? Um, so, so that's, that's kind of the process. Um, each video, each species might uh, have a little variation, but there is a lot of just detective work and research. You know, I want to know everything about that animal. I want to know everything about the location we're going to travel to. Next step is, is this location biodiverse? And if it is, what other episodes can we get? What other species did we not even anticipate in this area? And then we start doing extra research. And then by the time you know it, it's like potentially have seven or eight episodes that we can get in a single location. And uh, it was a great example in KZN, uh, Mike, on our trip there. Uh, that was one of those really biodiverse locations with reptiles and inverts and stuff like that, that we were able to get lots of other pieces we never anticipated. That's the perfect explanation. And so I guess to kind of steam that together, um, every production costs a set amount of money. So if you're already going to spend the money to 
move all that equipment and all the players. Once you get there, maximizing your time, energy, and effort for your output is kind of the best goal, right? So if you can get more than one shot or more than one series of episodes in one area, then you guys are essentially kind of putting yourself forward. Like you're uh, investing in the next several episodes. So you're not working on the timeline. You're working ahead of the timeline. Um, right. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's very important um, because as you mentioned, you know, a production in itself is just a massive effort to get underway. So we need to try and make the best of a large trip financially, you know, if we're traveling to the other side of the world. Um, and then ultimately it's us enjoying what we're filming, right? And and, and enjoying sure. the concepts, right? So if it doesn't excite us, we're likely not going to pursue it. Um, so that's that's the fun part of it, right? It, it's, it's the opportunistic moments in the field that we don't expect. Those are some of my favorite moments. It's like, let's, let's make an episode. And because it's just, everything's falling into place and, you know, let's go for it. That's super cool. So then after that whole series of events happens and you guys are ready to go, Coyote, I'm assuming you and Bo sign off on that and you guys establish kind of a framework of time and budget. And then you guys say, okay, this is when we're going. Uh, is that kind of how the next phase in that works there? Yeah, once we know that we've got a narrative in place that's a pretty good chance that something big is going to happen, then we know we, we're going to green light a trip. Like using the South Africa trip where we filmed this Rhino episode specifically that we'll get into here, you know, we're going to a place where we know there is at least a 90% chance that we're going to be able to find these animals by working with a vet team and experts in the field that are going to give us the ingredients we need to ultimately put together a finished episode. And we have no idea how those action events are going to play out. But in going to a location, we'll have one big target species, maybe a couple of others. And then like Mario was explaining, a number of other species that will fall under that that we may be able to make additional content off of. Because we produce for Brave Wilderness, we do something called batch producing. So we don't ever show up to a location and shoot just one episode. Although there have been exceptions, the majority of our trips, we are producing anywhere between 5 and 15 with a maximum of being 26 episodes on a single trip. You have to remember that we're spending all of our own resources financially upfront to make these episodes in the hopes that they get good views on YouTube and we're recouping those ad dollars on the back end. So it's different from like a television show or a movie where you don't have your budget upfront. You're rolling the dice, hoping you're going to be able to tell the story and grab the content that will cut together in the right episodes to essentially cover the financial expenses of the trip. And then of course be profitable on top of that. That is, that leads to another good point. So now we, there's a concept, there's movement and you've got the edits going and now you've got to face essentially the public's attention span, uh, yeah. which is ever changing in this modern world. Um, what are some of the strategies that you guys kind of collectively think about when you want to put something out? So that engagement, entertainment slash metrics of like, okay, we filmed this. Is there kind of like a, a, a phrase that you guys keep in house or is it just like, I know, cause I essentially know, I know you guys are not just like blown on the dice and gambling. I know you guys are very calculated. So I know you guys are like, this is where this needs to go. And this is how we need to do this so that it can have the best success rate. Uh, in those next steps? 
Yeah, Trent, why don't you kind of tell everybody a little bit about what we do in pre-production when it comes to title, conceptualization, thumbnails, and story driving points that will make an engaging tale happen? Yeah, as Mario said, you know, the whole team gets involved once we throw out an initial concept. Um, a good example is Australia, which we are preparing for now. Uh, it's going to be a month-long trip with a decent haul, probably around eight to ten episodes, um, with a lot of different animals, a lot of different locations. So now that we've kind of established what those animals are and what those places are going to be, um, we're getting ready to meet with the team to go over those things, such as thumbnail, uh, runtime, how the story goes. And the important thing about uh, YouTube is that the thumbnail is everything. The thumbnail is what determines if somebody is going to click on a video or not. Because as you know, if you go on YouTube, especially on the computer, you're just blasted with thumbnails everywhere. You've got this video and that video. And most of the time, it's things that are not even related to each other. So what is it that's going to grab your attention right away out of that sea of other thumbnails? So we spend a lot of time trying to figure that out before we go. Sometimes it magically happens in the field, but you know, we have our social media team who is actively searching for similar videos. When we did our Jaguar episode, they came to the meeting with, uh, you know, 10 different, uh, thumbnails that were already doing well, that weren't doing well, titles that were doing well, titles that weren't doing well in the current ecosphere of YouTube, Facebook, uh, in the past and in the present. So we take that information and we, uh, apply that to what we're going to do in the field. So we say, you know, these did really well. This is roughly what we're going to go for. We're going to experiment with a few other ones. And then when it comes back to the office here, it gets experimented even more. It gets mixed and matched and we see it and we're like, oh, let's change that. Um, and it's the same for titles. You know, when we go out in the field now, we try to have titles established before we go because that can help dictate the story as we're filming it. Because if we know we want it to be a certain way. Uh, you know, we had a, a mantis shrimp episode that we just finished up and we had two kind of titles that we were working around punched by a mantis shrimp and mantis shrimp versus human hands. So we're like, we have these two options and how can we film two different versions of an intro and outro to fit either one of those narratives so that if we need to change uh, in post-production, we can. So these are things that like, a, you know, Kaidi was saying, like a TV show is not going to really have to worry about. They don't need to worry about a title. They don't need to worry about a thumbnail. I mean, if you've got a 10 series or 10 episode series going to Netflix, People don't really care about the title. I mean, yeah, there's the little tiny thumbnail that kind of comes up, but you got a trailer that pops up and everything. So it's, it's less relevant. And it's a struggle that we you know constantly deal with because the algorithm changes, what people want to see, what they don't want to see changes. Um, but it is probably the most important thing that we deal with because you can have an incredible video that nobody watches because the thumbnail and title just didn't hit. And that's unfortunate, but it's the game that we have to play. And it's a, it's a piece that we uh, look at very, very, with a lot of scrutiny. And it makes perfect sense. Honestly, it's, it's no, kind of yeah. just like all things marketing. If you don't get the initial interest grab, it doesn't matter how good the content is behind it. Someone's not paying attention or not tuning in. And then it's just kind of floating there in space. Yep. I think one important element too is you have to look at the audience, right? Who who are you marketing these videos to? Um, I'm a lover of animals and I will appreciate any video out there, any documentary video and such. But I'm a biologist, right? We are 
uh, creating content for a general audience that maybe does not have any clue of a particular species or really care to even learn about a species. So we're trying to capture the general audience's attention and trick them into learning something. Right. I remember, I think Steve Rowan once said that too. He like, he said something like, I'm just, if, if they watch me be goofy or whatever, or getting bit or whatever, it's, I won, right. I'm just tricking them to learn uh, from what I'm trying to teach them. So, you know, that, that's very key is we've got a, a general audience. And so we have to, we have to just try and get that attention. Big time. Coyote, you look like you're sitting on a the thought there. What's uh, what's milling through your head there? Uh, I mean, Mario just makes a really great point. I mean, you know, Brave Wilderness's underlying mission is always conservation and education. But make no mistake, Brave Wilderness is first and foremost an entertainment brand. Being able to find a way to make subject matters surrounding the natural world super entertaining is difficult, especially in the YouTube space. Any digital distribution platform nowadays struggles with one thing, attention span. TikTok has come in and has just completely swept the rug out underneath anybody who had an attention span, especially the younger generation, which we're constantly trying to get in front of. I mean, perfect example. Um, we had an episode that came out this past weekend featuring maggots. And anybody listening might be saying to yourself, how in the world do you possibly make maggots, which are baby flies, entertaining? Well, to do that, we got 300,000 maggots, put them inside of a box, and then put my feet into the box to find out whether or not maggots will eat human flesh. Still, you have to really work to make that entertaining. And the episode on YouTube is doing fantastic at this point. But on TikTok, this thing went viral over the weekend. One of the posts that our social team put out has 21 million views already. Think Whoa. about that. 21 million views in just a couple of days on a 60-second clip of my feet. Basically, the payoff moment of my feet going into the maggots which is a huge win for the episode. It may not have the same you know, grandiose financial ad dollar value that something on YouTube does, but reaching those eyeballs and getting people excited, probably because of the gross factor, but just to see something interesting about maggots at the end of the day becomes a win for that animal species. And that's where I'm kind of going with all this is that our responsibility is to tell the stories for the animals. Brave Wilderness is the vehicle to turn them into a star, no matter how ugly, creepy, misunderstood, or feared a species might be. If we can tell the right narrative and make it entertaining, people will will listen and understand. Oh, that one's yeah. I I uh, I saw I saw the previews for that one. And I saw some of the social media cuts. I was like, oh, bro. But I know it's it's classic because it is funny because it 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 hooks people in. And I uh, specifically remember the meat sock, which was just like. Oh, bro, that one made me my skin crawl. So that was good. You have to get real creative to find a way. <laughs> I don't know concept, and we had a lot of fun with that one specifically. I mean, the whole team here at Brave Wilderness was really involved from concept to creation to uh, post production. You know, we paid homage to uh, Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. The meat sock was an obscure thing. We had science in it. We worked with a, a entomologist at the Ohio State University surrounding research she's doing on maggots. So it was a pretty robust episode considering it, the concept was born in the conference room where actually Trent is sitting right now. And together as a team, we, we figured out a way to make maggots entertaining. Oh, that's classic. Yeah, um, yeah uh, that's a, a good... I'm, I can only imagine, especially that like teenage realm of the creepy crawly like 
they're just like it's a magnet for them on something like TikTok because yeah. <laughs> they're just so creeped out, but they can't, they can't not watch. And then they end up learning something, which is the, the win. And, and maggots is a huge variation in the type of content we produce as compared to something like the rhino episode that we worked on with you. And, and if you want, we can get into more of the details on, on how that all came together. Cause that is a much different a uh, series of dominoes that must fall the right way to make an entertaining episode than something like putting 300,000 maggots in a box. <laughs> Big time. So uh, here we are. We've we've completed uh, essentially the COVID closure phase of our lives. And we're talking about the follow-up on the Rhino Conservation Challenge that we did in 2020. And then some filming opportunities and we were in some of the catch-up meetings with the winners and some of the next phases. And you guys ask about filming in Africa. And I say, okay, these are some ideal timelines. We throw, throw those together. You guys do your pre-planning. I start doing some initial s- tests to see who's where and when and all that stuff. And uh, we, we put a good probably 100 hours into that pre-segment of life and planning. And now we're actually going to talk about filming this episode um from your guys's side i believe what did you call it you call it your tent pole mm-hmm. episode is that what you call it right so yeah, for the year year and then um for us we generally have on the gcf side one or two film crews following us a year obviously during covid we didn't have any of that because of everything closed so we weren't worried about like previous commitments but what did happen was um, the timing of everything was uh, there were a lot of folks just for whatever reason, all overlapping the same timing. So we were putting ourselves into this place uh, in South Africa so that we could get this all going. And now we got to do the animal concept. So from your guys' side, how do you, how did, how did you guys make a giant rhino poaching slash anti-poaching conservation message come through because this is a big episode. I mean, that was a lot of work, a lot of shots, a lot of different activities in between. Um, And I know it's not as, unfortunately, in some aspects, the public's not jumping in of like, ooh, I love this really good content, really good uh, filming, cinematography aspect, everything, interview and content versus the internet space. It's like, I want to watch, you know, this, this crazy thing or this creepy crawly thing. Uh, what, what's going on through your guys' head when you guys are looking through this big episode and how you want to make it successful uh, for your conservation content? Hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. First of all, video is doing well in, our, in, in YouTube, Cardi, right? I would, I would agree that it's surpassed mm-hmm. a million views. Right. So that's always a nice number to say, like a video has reached a million. So for a longer piece, such as the Rhino episode, it started off very strong. We had a two and a half million views in six months, which is really good for a conservation centric episode. Anything over a million views is always going to be a win. If I'm not getting bitter stung by something, anything going beyond two million views is always good, especially something this. So, yeah, yeah. continue on, Mario. Epic. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, so start off like, yes, it's a successful video currently. Obviously, creating it in the field, we were very focused in getting all the pieces and parts. Mm -hmm. And with especially the Rhino episode, there were some unpredictable elements that, Mike, I know you, you, the trip was extremely planned, but there were things outside of your control as well mm -hmm. um, that we had to navigate. Uh, so to put it into perspective, we filmed the entire Rhino episode in the span of five days, I would say. Yeah. Um, with, that's with the from, brunt of it being two. I mean, what? with the brunt of it being two. I mean, really, it was the, the white rhino and black rhino day was was the procedures, the rest being B-rolls. So we, I mean, and it wasn't even two full days. I mean, because those activities were so fast, which we very quickly learned um, after doing the white rhino. Like, whoa, this is high speed a lot of people, a lot going on. I mean, I've never been in the military or part of a military operation, but I would guess that it has a similar vibe. You know, you'd probably have more military operation than, than any of us. So, um, you know, there was nothing to prepare for that. I mean, we had no idea. So it was good that we did have two procedures we could be part of so that the main uh, black rhino piece that came on the second day, we were well prepared for. That, that's a good point, Trent. So we had designated logistically, right? We, we designated in advance. Okay, we've got five days to produce an episode. Uh, that's five filming days. That's minus like travel days and such. Uh, well, when we get to the reserve, because of procedural elements, uh, we realize, well, we only have the last two days of our time at Karika Game Reserve in that region before we move to another region last two days are the days designated for the rhino procedures. So essentially we had to back produce a lot of the episode. So we, we focused on getting the B-roll shots. We focused on getting all the stitching shots um, before we actually had to do our last two days of filming. And think about it. We traveled all the way around the world to this location, prepped as much as we can. And we only have two days to really get the meat of the episode. We don't know if weather is going to, you know, something with the weather might happen. We don't know if we're even going to find the rhinos, which is always an element with these procedures. So we were we were kind of nervous. I'm, I'm not going to lie. For the producer element in me, right, I was nervous. I was like, I'm going to breathe and finish <laughs> one of these procedures, right? Um, but everything, uh, you know, we, we, we rolled with the opportunities, right? We're always a good sport. We listened to the experts and we got into the right positions and we had two wonderful procedures. As Trent said, we had a unexpected dehorning procedure, which was the most powerful um, element in the video. Uh, so that was a right, white rhino. And then the second day we had a procedure with the black rhino where we put the little lorry tracker in its horn. Um, so it was, it, it, it was a, a lot of, a lot of preparedness to get to the moment. And when you have a team, which by the way, it's only Trent, Coyote, and I, with the added help of you, Mike, you were very, very crucial in many elements throughout the, the our trip to Africa, holding cameras, helping to, you know, get us in position. But essentially three or four people producing a segment of this quality uh, with so little time. It, it could be challenging, but we pulled it off. 
I think you guys did a fantastic job, honestly. I, you know, I've worked with a lot of crews and a lot of, you know, different media and whatnot. And so many, um, they either have like a, a Hollywood set mentality for the location or they have the Hollywood set crew mentality of like the union crew. And there's like 40 people and you're like, what, what are we supposed to do with all these people? Like, (laughs) so you guys being basically, uh, ninjas, each one of you being able to, you know, wheel and deal a camera and, and all being so in synchrony with each other. It was awesome because it was very easy to adapt to all the different things and comically, like South Africa, for example, is one of those places where if you get said, hey, we have three weeks to film, you could do a two or three episodes a day easily if you had the energy. But then that's something that's important in this as well is actually not over tapping you guys because you guys are doing so much. Um, like, let's Trent, let's talk about camera and data logistics real quick. So you get that magical shot and we've all been waiting for it and working towards it. And then boom, you got it. We don't want to lose that now. Right? So now it's shots done and you're doing basically data storage and archiving and your, all of your ear tags on stuff so that it can get safely copied and transferred. What's that next step look like from you? Yeah. I mean, that is the most important part in the field, right? We, uh, fly all the way there. We spend all this money, time, um, and a lot of the things we are doing, it's one time and that's it. You know, you can't regrow a, a rhino horn and can, you know do that whole procedure again. Um, so the, the footage is everything. And, you know, we don't have the ability to, you know, lock it away somewhere, ship it somewhere. You know, we're in the middle of nowhere. So um, I always like to do three backups and we do that immediately as soon as we get back, we pull all the cards. It's a group effort. We put labels on everything. Um, and then I show everybody their shot, their first and last shot to verify, like you are seeing that, you know, we do have this backed up and you are confirming that these are the shots that you did today. Um, it's just a checks and balances because as you know, sometimes we come back after a 10 hour shoot and we are warped and it's very easy to be looking at numbers and, and things on the screen and just be like, uh, I got it. You know, so it's it's so vital that you do work slowly when you're backing up the footage and you take the time to look at each card, make sure we got it, especially when it is very, very important stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, my process, we come back, we, we pull all the cards, we dump it. Um, usually before dinner, we get it immediately onto uh, two hard drives. So we have three copies and then we run another copy overnight and then two of those copies are hidden away so that no one knows where those are. And those are my backups. And then we carry one in the field with us. So this is applies to anywhere we go in case our hotels, Airbnbs burn down, you know, we get robbed. Um, we have things in proper places so that, uh, we don't lose footage. So cross fingers, knock on wood, never lost a drive, never lost a card, never lost a file. So, um, it's just a testament to like what we what we do, and we care very much about our process. Same goes for equipment too. You know, we are we're very very uh, anal about how we manage our equipment, how we keep it. Um, you know, we've learned to be very small and compact. As Mario said, it is just us three, so you know we can't roll around with you know ten cases of gear. We have before, and it's tough. Uh, recently, in Jag- when we did Jaguars, we had quite a bit. Um, 
but it's just, it's just, we get better and better, you know, every time we learned a lot from South Africa actually. So, you know, it's just stuff that we continue to apply in what we do, but each element of production is just as important as the other one to come up with the final product, uh, like we did. Yeah, that, that's, uh, <laughs> it wasn't with you guys where we, we mailed a, uh, one of the drives back. Was it, was that your guys' uh, trip? No, it wasn't with us, but we have done that before. Last time when we were in Australia, we did do that midway through the trip. And that's something we'll likely do this time as well. Cause being a month gone from the office, you know, the editors are going to end up being behind if we don't get that stuff sent out. So yeah, that is a common practice, not just with us, but in uh, the film industry, um, anytime they're doing long films or long productions, everything gets shipped out, but they've got copies everywhere as well. You don't just send your one copy to LA or New York for the editors to dig into. You got to save your, your gold bars, basically footage is gold bars. So. Big time. So coyote, what was, what was your takeaway after all of that? I mean, I know it's, this is all relatively kind of stressful in the aspect of a big episode, a lot of moving parts, a lot of key locking films, uh, pieces, players that you want on camera. Um, what's going through your head when this kind of big motion of aspects is coming through? Cause I know you've actually got to get on the camera and say the things that you are trying to express about the storyline. And that's actually very challenging when there's people running around yelling, chainsaws going, uh, veterinarians telling you to move, stop, come forward, back up. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on and in that living aspect. And now you've got to talk clearly on camera and remember what part of the sequence you're in for the story. Yeah, it certainly is a challenge. And this episode specifically presented more challenges than we had anticipated until you go into filming a procedure like what happens with the dehorning of a rhino. You don't realize how many people and how many obstacles for the camera team and your presentation style are going to exist. So anytime we go into a location and, and with any specific species that we're going to film, we do a lot of research. So we're versed in the basics that you would want to hear about this animal. This story specifically was incredibly dense because we were trying to tell the story of poaching. Why is rhino poaching happening? Who's doing it? What is the possible result? How is a group like GCF and anti-poaching unit rangers coming in to help alleviate the strain that are, are being put on these animals? And then what can you do as a viewer to possibly get involved? So, you know, this was so much more complex than a typical episode, but it's why we consider it, like you used the term earlier, Mike, a tentpole episode. And this is the kind of episode that we will share with our conservation partners, that we share with anybody else that we might want to work with. Sure, the stuff where I put my hand into a box of angry yellow jackets might be the most popular, but this is the stuff that is the most meaningful to Brave Wilderness, where we're actually able to present a conservation message and deliver forward an initiative that could change the future for a species. So once we had all this in the can and Trent had it all backed up, for me, the real challenge then came in post-production once we were back in Columbus to say, okay, you've gone to the grocery store, you've got all the ingredients, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to bake a good cake. Mm. So I worked very closely with one of our most talented uh, editors, Ryan, and we actually, for one of the first times in a, in a project, whiteboarded out all the different directions that this episode could go to figure out how are we going to make it fast-paced but still get in the dense levels of information that needed to be in there. Um, and we worked for about two weeks crafting the story in post-production, 
putting the right script together, understanding how to tie all the pieces, parts to one another between the number of days that we filmed out there. Um, you know, obviously giving you the balance between the white rhino, the black rhino and explaining how these species have been, you know, devastated over the, the, the past 25 to 50 years in the, in the realm of their existence. Once we had that narrative locked down, you know, the editors go to work and Ryan spent well over a month crafting the first rough cut of this episode. And I remember the first time that we saw it, we were like, man, it's really good, but it still really needs a lot of work because I think the original cut of the episode was like maybe 27 minutes. Uh, it's current runtime as it's it seen to the audience is uh, just over 18 minutes. And the key to that was keeping the episode moving as fast as possible. I think Ryan did an amazing job of upping the pace the music, the narrative, all of these things that tied together where you were getting the action points, the cinematography was immersive, and then you were able to um, to palette this really dense narrative about why rhinos are being poached and, and what the differences that we can make for them in the future. So it was a, a labor of love in many regards, but certainly I would say one of the most proud episodes that we've ever made on the Brave Wilderness channel. Definitely our, our biggest one of the year, that's for sure. Oh, it it turned out so ace. It is so clean and cool. The messaging is on point. And from like the viewpoint of like us in the field of conservation full-time, I know we commonly feel like things get missed or things get highlighted that aren't part of like the actual storyline. And there was none of that in any of this. And so it was really cool like you said, where you guys can share it with like your conservation partners and stuff. Same with us. You know, we could send that out and I can send it out today, tomorrow in a week. And it's the same content block and has the same heavy hitting impacts because it hits the big, the big points. Uh, there's a problem. We're working on it. Unfortunately, we have to do things that we don't want to right now because we're in a critical stage, but there's hope and pushing that envelope. Um, with the facts in all the sandwich in between there. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the key elements to this, to, to what you just said, Mike, in us getting the narrative right, as you mentioned, thank you for that, um, is working closely with you, right? Throughout the process. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that I hear a brave wilderness, we don't need to adhere to a network hierarchy, right? We right. say, hey, we are working with these experts and we're going to send them cuts to review, right? Like we sent you or Heidi's mm -hmm. going to send you the script to review. These are things that we do that are um, sometimes seen as maybe a courtesy if you are at another company or something. No, we do this because we want to get the story right. We want the experts we're working with to be happy and also see this piece or this content, right? As something that they can share. The worst thing for me is the person that we worked with is like, oh yeah, great job guys, but it's not right, not accurate. You know, I'm not going to share this. So oh. we're telling, <laughs> yeah, we're telling your stories, right? The, 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 the people in the field and we need to do right by you guys. And that is the one thing I take a lot of pride in at Bray Wilderness is that we adhere to those standards and those ethics. Oh, you guys do a good job at it. I mean, uh, I can't even imagine these hours probably aren't included, but all the time frames in the back of the uh, safari, safari 
cruisers and in our rental cars, asking the questions, going over the topics. There wasn't, there was a lot of comedy, but there was also a lot of targeted conversations so that the depth of each thing. And then also like pre-planning, like every day when we're cruising to a site, I'm, I'm trying to give you guys as much to prepare for like, hey, we're coming into this. This is kind of what it's going to be like. These are some of the areas that you would probably be safest or avoid this, or these are your key people you want to pay attention to, you know, those things uh, to which then again, all of it comes out to the end. And you guys did, you guys sent me, um, I remember the whiteboard. I, I think you sent me a picture with it, Coyote. And yeah. then uh, I remember reviewing footage and the, the kind of the storyline as well. So that if there was anything that was like maybe slightly off or it didn't have the same impact and you guys were great with making those shifts and adjustments and there weren't many actually it was just it was very clean it was very it was very smooth one other unique element about this episode too mike which we haven't touched on yet but is definitely worth mentioning is once we were there filming and we got to spend the time that we did with the experts on the ground and learning about Carica Game Reserve's future initiatives for expanding their reserve and wanting to eventually bring Black Rhinos in there. Because, um, you know, the location that we shot the Black Rhinos was off-site at a, at a private conservation reserve. But in the future, Black Rhinos will hopefully be a part of Carica. We were presented with the opportunity to launch a fundraising campaign upon the release of this episode. So to tag yes. that all to the work that comes from storytelling as well um, is quite the challenge. And I'm, I'm very proud to say that at this point, we've raised over $100,000, as you know, but I'm saying this for the audience listening, uh, over $100,000 raised at this point for the Save the Horns campaign um, to continue promoting Carica Game Reserve, the work that Global Conservation Force is doing, and the hopeful vision that in autumn of 2023 or uh fall of 2023 there are going to be black rhinos introduced to cricket game reserve on this new expansion of property which is really exciting for us to have been a part of not only filming the story in advance but also helping to raise some of the the financial support behind that big time that's a really good point uh in all aspects when it comes to our side of the realm not only doing the work but the fundraising the digital space and the social media space has changed dramatically ever since um, 2020 elections and COVID basically overlapping. We do not have the same kind of engagement in any of the same platforms anymore. And so when we as a nonprofit working in these spaces get to have this multi-level tangible application. So not only we're in the work of the conservation, but we're helping in the filming. And then there's this fundraiser in the whole scan of timeline you're looking at months before getting the film done and that's tethering into a plan of release and then that's tethering into a plan for fundraising starting so there's our crew is building all of the websites and the platforms and then your your guys's crew actually helped with that too getting the landing page and all the other things going the save the horn site so that when everything seems together it's one big dropped package so like no matter which side of the coin you find it on, whether you're on the GCF website or you're on the Brave Wilderness YouTube page, it all links back to each other harmoniously. And the same story of here's the problem in the story. You can watch it. This is how you can get involved. Here are the ways you can get involved. And then here's the way you can share further on this with the messaging. Oh, look, hey, we're this is where we are now. You know, you hit the GCF uh, social media feeds or website. 
and yeah, we're over a hundred K raised, which that's a very successful fundraiser. That is extremely hard to do right now, especially in the digital space. Um, just because of attention spans, I would say same things with like TikTok. Um, there are a lot of shiny things out there. There are a lot of good efforts out there. Uh, the Ukraine, uh, war happened right in the middle of our film plans. So that also is something we were sensitive to, um, you, you know, you don't want to drop a fundraiser as the 48 hours after Ukraine gets invaded. Uh, even if that was your one year plan, uh, you, you know, we had to make very, uh, cautious adjustments to all those things so that everything comes out into one big successful landing piece where we're at now, which is really exciting. Yeah. You're, you know, I, I learned a lot from your team, from you and your team, Mike, uh, especially seeing them in action when we were at the actual, uh, a, a fundraiser event. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, guys, you guys are experts at this and the knowledge you guys have, especially when I was overhearing conversations with our team about logistics. I mean, you, you guys are on point when it comes to fundraising and all the logistics involved. Thanks, man. Yeah, it is very hard to run a nice, smooth fundraiser. There's always going to be changes and challenges when you have like a big one, like I'd say anything over 50 people. Um, and yeah, that in fact, the uh, Save the Horns World Rhino Day event was a lot of fun. And uh, having you guys out was a huge, it was a blast. It was like, it was fun on all aspects. The event was great. The review was great of the event. Uh, everybody from our team enjoyed it. Uh, so it was, and it, of course it was extremely successful for like the full, what we would call as a punt, uh, a punt launch for the fundraiser, like a real good kick to really launch what we're actually doing. Nice. So it was nice. cool. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. I had a good time. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty fun. Trent, uh, let's talk gear. I know we're going to be getting close to our, Timeline, you guys are probably looking at a Qdoba run or something right now. I think it's uh, closer <laughs> yeah. to lunch. We lunch before we got out. Oh, that, dude, that's smart. Yeah, yeah we wouldn't uh, have survived very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought you were fading over there. I was going to slide yeah. you a digital sandwich. I was going to be like, hey, oh, here you go, wow. buddy. I like that, Mike. <laughs> um, I was going to say, packing all this gear, uh, you had the monumentous task every day of – well, and Mario too, of getting each camera set ready and what you're going to film with lenses, um, battery packs, drones. How did that kind of feel once you were actually scrambling to like the run and gun style uh, film to the GoPro to the drone and the establishing shots? Well, before even going there, uh, every time we prepare for a trip, big or small, we have a very uh, you know lengthy process of going through everything. We make sure everything is updated. We make sure we have every battery, every cable. We have extras of every cable or battery, especially if we're bringing a very complex piece of gear like we did uh, filming Jaguars. We had a very complex gimbal system. Um, but me and Mario, we triple check everything. I'll pack everything. He'll pack stuff. And then we'll go through battery by battery, cord by cord, piece by piece. And we both verify that everything is there. So it starts here at the office. And it's also making sure that we have the right tools for the job um, because we have different cameras that are just better in different situations. And um, that was the case with uh, the Rhino episode. So when we were there, it was very 
important that we had that first rhino encounter because we, I quickly made a pivot, uh, switching cameras, switching uh, how we did the sound and everything so that our second episode or second piece would be uh, much easier. And one of the challenges, I'd say the biggest challenge was sound. Um, you know, I, I'm really anal about how like everything is like, I want, want the best sound, want the best video, would love to have all the top cameras out there and, and make it as, as close to a cinematic Hollywood production as possible. But a lot of times we have to give up some things in order to be able to pull off an episode. So for this, I had to, you know, I knew that this was going to be the case coming out there. I had like a military chest piece bag that I put our entire sound bag in, had both lobs, extra batteries, tape, scissors. So like an entire makeshift mini sound bag on my chest that, you know, it needed a couple other things because the zippers were kind of coming undone. So I'm running with this sound bag and lobs had like falling out. I'm trying to adjust knobs while holding the camera and filming. And, you know, we've got Dr. Folds in the helicopter and I don't have any signal from him. And I'm just like, I hope that when he gets near us, it just picks up. Cause I was like, I can't go run up to him and make an adjustment. It's like, if we don't get the lobs, we don't get the lobs. But if we do, we do. Well, everything worked out flawlessly. We did get the lobs. It all worked. Um, but it was just me being prepared for all those scenarios. You know, I had all those tools on my chest, had stuff in my backpack and on my side. Um, I mean, the best way to describe it is like, you're like, you're a Navy SEAL. Like you're a Navy SEAL with the camera. It's not like a studio production where you got a grip truck sitting outside. You've got a first AC and a second AC running you batteries. You know, what you can fit on you is it. And if you don't have enough ammo, then you're not going to make it through the entire, you know, the fight basically. So, um, you know, me and Mario have learned through many different productions how to be lean and how to be fast and how to be efficient in both packing and both uh, filming, backing up, how much footage we shoot. Another very important thing uh, with the volume of stuff we shot on that trip. So it's just it's just a it's a learning game. I mean, cinematography, period, is a, a sport in a way. You can't just run out there at the first game and make slam dunks and touchdowns and you know, you're just, that's not going to happen. You got to get it through repetition, practice, learning. This didn't work that time. Let's try this. And because of that, we've become a very well-oiled machine in what we do and what we use. Like, like I said, I have, I was extremely impressed. I've been with a lot of crews. You guys were hands down the easiest to work with and the, the most fun. So you guys did a real good job of being nimble, fast and, and flexible with every, every little thing that was happening. Yeah. yeah. That's, going that's on. the fun part. Going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I I echo what Trent says. Uh, we take a lot of pride. You know, Trent and I, when we're shooting uh, our roles as you know, well-oiled machines. Coyote knows exactly. You know, uh, the three of us, we just know exactly what we're doing, and that happens through experience, right? They're not asking me what shot I'm getting. I'm getting the shot that needs to be get shot. You know, gotten. And then same with. Trent, you know, uh, Coyote knows exactly the camera to look at, whether uh, it's Trent as a camera or sometimes he needs to look at my camera. I'll pop Y, boom, he's good to go to give a line. So uh, we are always just, you know, and, and Trent doing, by the way, the whole sound thing, usually you have a dedicated sound person. Let's just put mm -hmm. that on. We never have a dedicated sound person, <laughs> but Trent has to be sound as well. And he's not only just a camera looking at coyote and also 
the scenes, he's also making sure that the sound is acceptable. So that in itself is a big challenge. Yeah, that's a lot of work. Coyote, you got something there? Yeah, I think sometimes it's tough for people. Once you see a completed episode, you don't notice the struggle that happens behind the scenes because if you've pulled it off right in the field and in post-production, it looks phenomenal. But the amount of work that went into this episode specifically, you know, no one will ever be able to appreciate how many moving pieces there really were to pull off the miracle that we did in, in the five days that we spent producing this episode. Um, and of course, big thanks to you, Mike, for helping logistically set it all up. And, you know, oh, welcome, and, and Dr. Folds, like everybody that we worked with on this production was absolutely magical. And, you know, we, we are very, very thankful that we were able to get this story out there. Again, it is one of the biggest that we've told this year, arguably the biggest certainly in the realm of, of conservation, I would say. And hopefully uh, people will continue donating to the Save the Horns campaign. Obviously, it's an ongoing thing. There's no set end line for when this is going to happen. But our next trip to South Africa will hopefully have us back at Cricket Game Reserve with these black rhinos getting introduced to the to location. I mean, when that happens, it's going to be a really Cinderella story ending to this whole journey that began you know, with our first rhino conservation project a couple of years ago, Mike, like in the, oh, yeah. in the COVID. So we continue to be committed to rhinos and the conservation that surrounds that species, uh, the reserves that we work with in South Africa, and certainly with Global Conservation Force when it comes to getting more anti-poaching unit rangers on the ground to protect these species. Well, I'm, I'm thankful for you guys, and I know we're at our cut time. So I'll uh, if anybody has anything else they'd like to say, feel free. I'm sorry, feel free to do so. Um, but I was going to say from our side, you know, your guys' support has been invaluable, um, not only from the storytelling aspect, but you guys have helped raise, uh, life saving funds for multiple different aspects of wildlife protection and conservation. Whereas if you guys didn't come in with that life raft during the time frames, you guys answered the call for help. Uh, a lot of those people wouldn't be there anymore. So it's important for you guys to know that the impact you guys' work is, has reached I would say dozens of people for support and keeping those same professionals you worked with in the field employed, active, and their jobs didn't evaporate through COVID and up until now. Um, and the exciting part is, is I was reading the uh, game movement emails uh, just a couple of nights ago. The cheetahs are on track to actually come early. Uh, so the cheetahs is part of the reintroduction program with the save the horns. Um, mm -hmm. So it's my understanding that they could be there as soon as the next two weeks. Wow. Uh, so I will see the cheetahs in two and a half weeks when I'm back at Kurika and uh, we'll see some of the other critters, which includes actually uh, another set of animals, which is the leopard bomas. Uh, part of the save the horns and property expansion program was actually um, being part of this mitigation program for local farmers shooting leopards as well uh trying to get them to like the agricultural guys to stop shooting leopards so Karika now has a what we call like a soft release boma for these quote nuisance leopards as well and that's part of the property expansion so those factors alone from under the arc of umbrella protection with rhinos has become possible not to mention the fence line drops the black rhinos on the schedule for october of next year so a lot mm -hmm. of cool stuff. And uh, of course, everybody listening, if you guys want to see the updates, you can go to the GCF page at any given time. 
We're doing Save the Horn updates on average every two weeks to a month, depending on the progress. So you'll see the new Ranger housing coming in uh, almost finished with the full framing sometime this week, as well as the new horse trailer for the extended patrols because the extended property. And shortly you'll be seeing myself and some of the other senior instructors training the next generation of community selected Rangers coming in from all the adjacent communities. So a lot of cool work. Thank you guys for all of your support and all of your hard work making this possible because it's not easy. And I know there's a lot of time involved on all aspects. So from my crew to your guys' team, thank you guys. And uh, thank you guys for joining us on the call today. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, my, my brain's going. I can't wait for the next time. Let's get back out in the field. Find you some more. We'll find you some more uh, creepy crawlies and snakes to find as well. Uh, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll hit up Ty and see if we can find some new uh, rare creatures to find. Um, so for everybody listening, thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Coffee Conservation. Be sure to find us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Also on Instagram, coffee underscore and underscore conservation. Give us a, a subscribe or a rating if you enjoy the show. And if you guys are looking to get more involved in conservation, you can always find us at the Global Conservation Forest social media pages. With that, I'll catch you guys on the next episode of Coffee and Conservation. Thank you.